Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. I think about it like the work that we're doing now at Daily Mifflin and even some of the stuff that you're doing that I think makes Memphis better is that if we're able to kind of be transparent or create transparency around the city, the government, projects, uh, people, the more that we can do that, the better off everybody's going to be. My guest today is James Macklin. James is out of Memphis, Tennessee, where he is the founder of M&M Enterprises, a multifamily real estate company. Before founding M&M, James spent 20 plus years working for the very successful Mid-America apartment communities. Mid-America was founded by Memphian George Cates and is a great story. On this episode with James, you'll hear why going out on your own isn't easy, what he would do differently, and what has been better than he expected. Building up and not out, what can happen when a city continues to revitalize within? The power of transparency. What happens when a government, press, a business, or any system operates transparently and not in the dark? The power of relationships, the impact that George Cates has had on his life and career, and more. Please enjoy this week's episode with James Macklin. James, good to see you. Thanks for coming on this afternoon. Hey, man, thanks for having me. First question I, I have and I thought of and I you know, read about you, you were saying, you know, after you got in your MBA, that's when you, you know, met George Cates and Eric Bolton, your relationship with George, because tragically he recently passed away. And I know you're with MAA for right at 20, 21 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there. So I'm curious as, as much as you're willing to share, I read a quote that this is somebody writing about George Cates. I think this would actually might have been out of the paper that you're on the board of Daily Memphian, but I knew him mostly from board meetings when he would always cut to the heart of the matter at hand with good humor and precision. I never met him personally, but I've heard tons and tons of people talk about George all the time. I'm curious to kind of know about your relationship with him and why he means so much to you and how he built a strong relationship with you the way you described it. You know, I, I think, man, it's uh, you, you're going to make me tear up <laughs> here a little bit when, I, when I, I think about George. He's just one of those persons you just never think about will die. You know what I mean? You just kind of just think they're always going to be there. And if, you know, again, probably since I met him, 
you know, some of those key turning points in my life, I would, you know, go and talk to him about kind of, you know, particularly business stuff and things like that. But I, I think, you know, I'm a people watcher. You just kind of sit back and watch and you just you just get to see a lot of good that George just from how he loves his wife, how he treats his sons, you know, and and how successful they are and the impact that he wants to have on the people that he meets and and visit with, visit with, you know, he just makes you feel so important. And also, you know, an uncanny ability to, to problem solve. I think, you know, he was an engineer by degree, I think industrial engineer out of Georgia Tech. It's just amazing how he could, you know, talk, you could talk to him about an issue for five minutes and he would hone in on it. But he was, spe- he was a special. We spent a lot of time together, you know, when I first joined Mid-America, we traveled a lot. I've flown a hundred times with George flying. And uh, during the early days at Mid-America, we had the room, you know, we had two people in a room and uh, we would room, you know, periodically. I'd room with Eric and we had some other guy, obviously other team members that we room with. But, uh, you know, you kind of get to know people when you're spending that kind of time with them. <laughs> yeah. Even though it's a last time I saw close to $2 billion company now and I know there's a lot of things that happen you know to get it to that point but you're saying it was it was very much in kind of an an entrepreneurial kind of hustle scrappy environment even though it was in within uh, multifamily investments and things like that is that what you're saying yeah no, you know no question about it man I tell you we would in those early days man we we had particularly after we after you know going public one of the things you have to do is allocate capital. Basically, you know, you have cash when you, after you go public, you got to go spend it and put that money to work in various assets and things like that. So really a capital allocation play. But as part of that, man, we had to deploy that capital really fast because once you get it, you got to spend it and put it to work. And, you know, we were, we were blowing and going in those early years to grow the company and, to allocate that capital to buy properties, man, we would drive properties and underwrite them real quick and, and, and be on our way. You know, it was, uh, yes, that entrepreneurial spirit was definitely there. The family spirit was definitely there. And, you know, kudos to George, you know, he really, uh, a couple of things that, that he shared with me when he hired, when he hired me or when he and Eric hired me was number one, he said, hey, you're smart, you're young, and you're black. And that's going to mean something in Memphis. And I want you on my team because of that. And, uh, and he just, uh, it, it's amazing. He told me that the second day that I was with MidAmerica and we were driving to Jackson, Tennessee, of all places, <laughs> which is where the plane went down. <laughs> and, and probably one of the last conversations that I had with George was relative to my business now and, and him echoing that same, almost that same conversation that I had on day two at Mid-America. James, you're smart. You know, you're young. And I'm, I'm, you know, obviously I'm, <laughs> I'm a lot older than I was then. You're young and you're black and you're trying to be a developer. You know, he's, Memphis need, needs you to succeed and I want to help you do that. It's not going to be easy because everybody doesn't feel the way I feel when he said I, meaning himself. But he said, hey, it's important, you know, for you, for you as a black developer to make it in Memphis. 
And every time, you know, he said it to me more than once and his sons have said it to me a few times, but I always ask him, why is that? You know what I mean? Uh, as I kind of fight to do deals and, and get things going, you know what I mean? I just don't see that. But you know what I mean? He still says that it's important. And so he recognized that and said that even then and, and went off. There was always that kind of bent with him, you know, ever since I've known him. So you said, he said, you're young, you're black, and you're smart, and you're going to do great things for the city because Memphis needs you. But what do you think he saw in you where he wanted you on the team? Because it sounds like a very fast-paced environment. It sounds like y'all had to have things, processes and things ironed out very quickly. It sounded like, you know, obviously there was capital to, to deploy, but you had to make quick decisions. There's a lot of risk, all those things. But just an assumption and just an, a thought because of all the other things I've studied or interviews I've done, et cetera. He wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have said that to you or he, he wouldn't have wanted you on the team if he felt like you couldn't keep up or if he felt like you weren't going to help accelerate the mission. I mean, am I right on that? Or, and what do you think he saw in you to kind of tap into you to kind of bring you along and then and, and to where you would help drive things forward? Man, I tell you, I, I don't know. And I ask myself that a lot uh, or not a lot, but you know what I mean? You just kind of think about what is it about you that kind of makes you special? I, and I just don't have that answer. You know what I mean? I I do think that he has a knack for, for choosing talent and, and people that are around him that, that talk about him. You know, it's just uh, it's a good feeling to be in that group, but I don't, I, I just don't have that answer. I'm okay. trying to out. That's one of those things I told you earlier. It's like you talk to a lot of people, you say, you know, they're they've got this going on and they got stuff, but in a lot of ways, everybody you talk to, they're still trying to figure it out and do good things and and on to the next chapter. And I think I fit that I fit that mode. I just, I just don't know, you know. So what it feel like to you personally then when you had that meeting, when you saw him, when you saw what MAA had done up to that point. To be to kind of get that call, similar to like getting that scholarship or getting those offers from those other schools you talked about. What it what it feel like to be a part of that at that time? You feel you know I, for me, I just felt like I had made it home. To be honest with you, and number one, I just found some people that I really connected with, and that's what it felt like. I was like, let's go, and I'm I, I'm you know, because of my athletic days, I tend to be still be kind of a team person. And, and still, when I talk about my business, Stephen, today is like, hey, man, I got to find, I got to, I got to stop being the Lone Ranger out here. And I got to find partners and people that think like me or, or that there's a, uh, that I can build a good relationship to find a way to work, quite frankly, because I'm alone out here. Yeah. And I think that that's important, but, but I found that it, that was important at Mid-America to be part of the team and to be able to kind of, you know, from a football analogy, to be able to get in that huddle with 11 guys, call a play, know you all are all working in there together for one goal. I yearn for that, right? It's just, just one of those things that, that kind of I enjoy and that I want to be, be around. And quite frankly, one of the things that I have truly missed since, since leaving Mid-America is not, is that team aspect. Every Every deal, every relationship, partnership that I have the opportunity to explore, I'm looking for that huddle. Yeah. With that environment, it sounds just from the way you described it, 
in the way that I've read about George and then also understanding you, it sounds like an environment that pushed you, that got the best out of you, but that also connected with you to like know that it was a place that really cared about. Is that true? Yeah, you know, I definitely like feel that. And I think that when you think about that, and I think of some, you know, I kind of think all the time, I got what, what is it that makes, you know, Mid-America special? Obviously, it's the people. But I also think that one of the things that George ushered into the company was just the unbelievable level of transparency in everything that we were doing. And I think about it like the work that we're doing now at Daily Mifflin and even some of the stuff that you're doing that I think makes Memphis better is that, you know, if, if we're able to kind of be transparent or create transparency a, around the city, the government, projects, uh, people, the more that we can do that, the better off everybody's going to be on multiple levels. But I, I think about that about Mid-America. It's just uh, a high level of transparency such that there was really not not a lot of places to hide, if you will. You know what I mean? If you weren't performing, it showed up. <laughs> And everybody knew it. <laughs> Can you unpack that a little bit, transparency and how you see that play out, not just through there, but through these other different examples that you reference? Like, what does that mean and why does it matter? Or how also do systems or, or groups of people, municipalities, et cetera, how do they operate with the lack of transparency and what are the consequences of that? I'd love to hear you kind of unpack all that. Well, wow, that, that's a lot. But I think at the end of the day, uh, how many times have, have you seen somebody or anybody or anything not be successful and just say, I just didn't know. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's the root of it. Right. And then you look at the, you know, companies, organizations that are growing. I think that's one of the things that you see in all of this, just a high level of transparency, even though they do some wrong things, but, but when, when that transparency is there, you can identify it, you see it, you can feel it, you can touch it, you can address it. And I think that that's at the at the end of it. That's all. And then transition that to Daily Miffian, which is, you know, the board or the foundation is Miffa's fourth estate. It's, uh, you know, it's that other form of government, if you will, that creates and shines a light. And that's why it's so important to the community that our journalistic environment uh, is improved as opposed to dying like a lot of other ones are. It's just so important. You know what I mean? I think that, I think honestly, since since Daily Miffian is, has been evolved, I think you've seen, if you monitor it, you've probably seen this, the commercial appeal get better. You know, that company that owns the commercial appeal has been, you know, downsizing, you know, eliminating positions, firing reporters, probably for the last five to 10 years. And that's changing here in Memphis at the commercial appeal. You know, they're hiring. The stronger you're seeing, you know, some better reporting that's coming out of them. And I don't know if it's, uh, they probably wouldn't say it's Dale Miffian, but I think that uh, it definitely, definitely helps. Some of this is just an assumption, but, you know, I, I did an episode, it was a great episode uh, with Jeff Calkins, but he talks about the same thing that you're saying and I've, I've done an episode with Otis Sanford. That was a great episode. But I guess what I'm hearing you say is transparent means kind of building it out in the open to some degree. And by building it out in the open, you're trying to get to the truth as much as possible. And you're also 
you're kind of calling your shot, not from an egotistical standpoint, but you're kind of all in on what you're doing. And yes, there's risk or yes, there's uncertainty or yes, specifically Jeff said, I think they need to be up to 25,000 subscribers or something. I don't know. And specifically maybe, and they were at 15 K, but the people that are there for the most part, the majority are locked in on that. And so you're calling your shot from a standpoint of being transparent about what the objective is, and then also being transparent, you know, as long as it's appropriate about what are the threats or what are the issues or what are the challenges, et cetera. But you stay focused on that. Is that what you're saying? And you're saying if things stay secret or lack transparency, you're keeping people in the dark and there's a lot more opportunities to get further from the core of what's actually going on. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you know, I, I think that there's some of that, you know what I mean? And I, I definitely don't want to protest that I'm the smartest guy or, or smart enough to figure that out. And I probably don't know my history as well as as well as I should. But I tell you, when you talk to people or when you look back in history and look at governments and look at things like that and the ones that don't share information to their constituencies, they don't know what's going on it's kind of a tough place to, to be in. And I think you see that in organization businesses and things like that, um, that replicates that. And I also think you see some of it socially, you know, you think about things that are happening, police brutality and the, some of the civil rest that we've had since COVID is out, you know what I mean? Could things be a little bit different if the transparency was a little bit better, right? And regardless of who's wrong, who's right, but, you know, some, some of that stuff, the public just needs to know just so we can deal with it, right? And face the music, if you will. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. Just curious, when did you think about starting your own? How soon was that into those 20 years? Oh, man, probably day two. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just, uh, it's just kind of, you know what I mean, a childhood dream, you know what I mean, the, the, to be able to do that. But, you know what I mean? You just, uh, life catches up. You're just busy, kids, family, things change. And you wake up and, you know what I mean? You with some, you know, you're there for 20 years and, and had a ball. And, uh, and, and you know what I mean? It's just, uh, and when I left, quite frankly, you know what I mean? It's, it's a math problem. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's what happens if, if I, I leave now and what happens if I don't, you know what I mean? And uh, it was it was very clear that uh, 
2016 was the time to do it. When you think back about that 20-year period, I read a statistic yesterday that 60-some-odd percent of people think about starting their own at some point. And I know multifamily investments, that's a lot more money, that's a lot more capital than just a side hustle or a small business. But 627,000 small businesses start every year and of those 627, 595,000 close. So it's not exactly the odds in the favor of the entrepreneur. But when you think back to those 20 years, do you wish you would have made the jump sooner? Do you feel like you kicked the can? What, what was that like? You know, I think um, I, I never thought I should have left earlier. There are probably some things that, um, that I probably could have did to better prepare myself. And, and whether that is, you know, people you get to meet or, or just really, you know, people say they want to be in business, but you really never kind of plan it, right? You just, or I didn't, I'll say that, you know, you know, just looking back, you just would have did a few things a little different. You know, I spent 20 years in real estate business with a major public company and I left, when I left the company, I didn't have a Tennessee real estate license. <laughs> you know, you just something that simple. It's like, why in the world would I just not have a real estate license? But uh, no regrets, but just, hey, looking back, it's kind of like that transparency. You'd be transparent with yourself is, hey, what could I have done better and made myself better? And quite frankly, probably could have helped the company a little more if I learned this earlier or who knows. But uh but yeah, I think that that's what I think about. Help the company more. Do you mean your company or MAA? No, I think both, really. But I was referencing MAA. You know what I mean? Could I learn something? Could I, I gotten a license earlier? Could I did something to, you know, maybe help me kind of run another division or something? I don't know. Or, you know, should I have been more active in this form of the business or this part of the business? Or, you know, it's just, there's a lot of what ifs that, that kind of, go through your mind, but you obviously can't get that time back. And, but no real, like, dang, I should have left 10 years ago. None, none of that. It's just, and I think that becomes a people thing too. You know, for me is that I really enjoy the people that I work with. So curious. I mean, if you had to, you know, if you were to do it again, which I know live in the future, we can always look back and say those things about what could have necessarily gone different. If there is somebody you know, that works for a, a good corporate large company like you did that did want to go ahead and, and go for it and start their own. What are some of the things that over the last four years that have been most crucial to you that you've seen that had you known you would have done those, but like you said, you know, you make a decision, you roll with it. What are, what are some of those things? Hey, the biggest thing I would tell anybody, particularly that I've learned over the last, call it five, six years, just don't do it by yourself. You know, try to cultivate relationships or have those relationship conversations to where you're not trying to go out there and start the business yourself, you know, and, and that you that you got one or two partners or three or whatever that that you cultivated over a few years to come up with the business plan to attack the the opportunity, that kind of thing. It that would that would really be the only thing that I would think about. You know, I was blessed to obviously be with Mid-America for a long time and to be kind of financially in a position to be able to kind of say, hey, if I don't make a dime in the next 10, 15 years, I'm okay. 
uh, my family's okay. Uh, but a lot of people don't have that luxury. And, and quite frankly, I'm doing a lot of learning on the, on the you know, as I go. <laughs> but I, that, that would be one thing that I would say. I didn't spend, I made a lot of good friends and was around a lot of good people, but did not over those 20 year periods talk a lot with people about my goals of wanting to be in business myself or how to make that transition. So when I kind of made the call, I'm out here by myself, you know, with people rooting me on and with people saying, hey, I support you. But you'll learn also in business that support I'm with you is different than being I'm your partner. I'm in bed with you. You know what I mean? It's just a little different. <laughs> yeah. And so what you're saying is those 20 years happened fast. You had been thinking about it. So you made a decision to go ahead and go for it. And then when you go for it, that's what you're saying. Those conversations about kind of leveraging skill sets, complementary, unique giftings of certain people, whether it's finance, whether it's capital, whether it's operations, et cetera. You're kind of, you're not in a position to kind of work on those relationships for a year or two, et cetera, to kind of make it all come together and you just go for it. And you got to be the entrepreneur that wears all those hats and have to put forth through raising it or your own, a lot of capital to do the deals that you do, you know, being in multifamily development. I mean, is that what you're saying? Yeah. You know, that that's it in a nutshell. You know what I mean? I think that again, the, the, uh, the young person that's uh, starting with a corporation, if that's your dream, you know what I mean? And it's not, I mean, it's not for everybody. Um, and some days I wake up, I wonder if it's for me, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but you know what I mean? I think, uh, again, looking back on it, be like, Hey, I could have, you know, again, a lot of my close friends would say, Hey, I didn't know you wanted to be in business yourself. Cause I just never really talked about strategize around that, you know, and they probably said, Hey, I thought you would have been in mid America for 50 years kind of deal. You know, I would recommend people to find a way, find that network of people and friends that you would love to do that with. What was it like from a marriage standpoint? Oh, you know, it's, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's been amazing. You know what I mean? My, the name of my company is Eminem and, and that's my wife and I, you know, we said, Hey, we gotta, we gotta hang our flag and get to work. You know, we didn't go through a marketing department. You know, we didn't go through PR guys to figure that out. It's like, you, Hey, we're, we're a team and let's go, let's go do this. And, uh, and, and that's kind of where, where that's from, but it, it's, it's, it's been amazing for me. And, and my wife has been so supportive. She's my partner in all the sense of the word, you know, but yeah, you, I think you, you obviously, you got to have that. She's in the medical field, so our fields are a little different, you know, when you talk about partnership and, and business and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's great. What about from a marriage standpoint on staying with like communication or kind of the throes? Of, I mean, I think about my own marriage. I think about my wife is fantastic at what she does. She's very uh, fiscally conservative, and there's certain ways she's wired and there's certain ways I'm wired. <laughs> when I think about my personal family life, you know what I mean? I'm, I, this is my third marriage. We've been married almost seven, eight years. And, and uh, I made a lot of mistakes in those early ones. <laughs> uh, and so hopefully I've learned and uh, you do better. But communication matters. My wife is my best friend. And I, I, I used to hear people say that. And I was like, how in the world is that? And now I know what that means. And you talk about 
you know, communication, you know what I mean? It's just amazing when you find that best friend, you find that loved one, you find that lover who matches you, you know, and, and can finish your sentences that understands you or that quite frankly puts up with you. <laughs> it's really, really special, man. My wife, I can't, my wife is, uh, she's a hard charger, go getter. And man, she is tough. <laughs> I would say she's she's a fighter in the family. You know what I mean? I'm going to say, whoa, <laughs> you know, maybe not. But and she pushes me, and and, uh, and she she's just wonderful, terribly smart. But yeah, I, I think that 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 matters, and uh, and that makes it also fun for me. You know, to be able to kind of, you know, what I mean, we're going to. She likes going. We like spending time in different cities and. Nashville, Atlanta, New York, et cetera. We're going to Atlanta tomorrow, you know, and I've got a meeting, right? And it's like, she'll work doing something else. And the meeting came up yesterday and we're riding together, right? <laughs> I go do my meeting, she'll go to work, go do some shopping or whatever, but that's how that goes, you know? Had a business meeting in DC two weeks ago. We float, and she flies with me and we go and she gets it, understands it, encourages it, and uh, and we work as a team and we're together. Yeah, it's really good for anybody out there that you know goes and, and makes that jump and lives in so much ambiguity, where they're not like a lot of people out there that work corporately or for other types of companies for the security of a check. How do you thrive and grow in that season when there's so much discomfort and fear that can naturally happen? Yeah, so wonderful question. I think, you know, when I when I hear of tough questions like that, at the end of the day, you you gotta really wonder what what's your core, why you're here, who do you serve, and, and what does that mean? You know, um, so that's the that's the that's the short answer. I think about uh I quit you know, I have anxiety just like any, anybody else and the peace that my faith gives me, it, it's really amazing. But but I, I tell you, and I don't know the numbers, and you may know a lot better than mine. I don't know if, you know, marriages and divorce rates are any different from entrepreneurials as it is for other people. <laughs> uh, maybe we just know it more, but uh, marriage is just tough. And it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. It means a lot. And it's important. And, and I think I am truly blessed for the partner that I have. She makes me better. <laughs> yeah, I read, you know, divorce rate is five to 10% higher for entrepreneurs than, than regular divorce rate. So that's interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is it was a team decision between you and her. You know what's going on. Nobody's in the dark. Transparency, again, the way you described it earlier with George, with MAA, with how you've talked about in your life, how you talked about Daily Memphis, et cetera. And you know your, your purpose, you know you're going in for it, and that can help provide peace in that season of kind of jumping off the cliff, so to speak. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. It just, uh, I've just learned, and it just really helps uh, to really kind of think about it and uh, make sure, particularly when, when you're married, having your partner really understand and know what's coming around the corner and, and, and the goals, objectives, and, and you know what I mean? And the, it's really special for me, quite frankly, just to know to, that, that I'm really with someone who, who, who loves me, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, that's comfort. And then to, to have someone who's going to 
be open and transparent with me, the good and the bad is comforting too, because uh, you may surprise me, but you won't surprise her. And if you surprise her, you won't surprise me. You know what I mean? It's going to be tough to get both of us like that. (laughs) Yeah. Is there anything you can speak to about taking that shot, taking that chance, leaving security, stability, and then how you've seen that in others where if you kind of got to quote unquote, take a step back to get back up and running, how you've seen maybe others played out or what advice you can give on that. Does that make sense? The way I said that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. And only, uh, again, uh, the only advice I can give is the advice that I got. And I think that I think I'm in a sim, you know, situation similar, you know what I mean? I think that, uh, I didn't really have a choice but to leave Mid-America, you know, even though it was the numbers just kind of made it work. Right. I just didn't. It just wouldn't make sense for me to go. I could you know, I I think I had to do it, but just having to do it for different reasons. Right. Uh, And so I say they're not making light of why other people may have had to leave or whatever situation they were in. So I didn't feel like I had a choice. Number one. Number two is some of the leaders that are really close to me as I was going through this decision, number one was my pastor, Bill Atkins, who's a founder and pastor of Greater Money. Uh, having a conversation with him, he was just like, look, James, for a, he's talking about me and you know what I mean? I just don't think that way, but he said, hey, for a person like you, James, who gives what you all give to the community, to the church, and the way you love the Lord, it is impossible for God to let you just fail and not be there. You know, he said, I don't know if you're going to be successful at this or that, but he's going to be there right there with you. And so that really gave me comfort. Another one was, you know, again, George just talking about, hey, you're black, you're smart, city needs you, you got to do this and you're going to be successful. That helped. And then I talked to a guy. We're not close, but we had just an amazing conversation. Uh, His name was Bob Worthington, and he's a multifamily deal guy out of Atlanta. And um, we probably had two conversations. And, And he literally just said, hey, you don't have anything to worry about. You're smart you'll figure it out. You don't have to worry about a job. <laughs> you know what I mean? He just literally just quite frankly laughed at me uh, about that. And I was like, you know, wow, that's amazing. And then he, you know what I mean? We share the same faith and we connected on a di- you know, a couple of different levels, business from multifamily side and deal side, and then just from our faith. And then I think he, he was kind of an old football guy too. Uh, but he said, hey, you know, you're smart. You know, if this doesn't work, go find something else. Make it work. You'll be fine. You know, it's not the end of the day. And and really having comfort that, hey, if I wake up in the morning, you know, God has spared me to give me another chance and let's go get it. And I feel good about that. That doesn't mean I don't have anxiety some days, but I do. I get a lot of comfort in in my faith and in my family for sure. Yeah. And so what you're saying, there's this sense of, circumstances they play out timing and then you got relationships and it's always easier to speak into something when you're not intertwined with it and there was a sense of freedom to go with the flow so to speak and go for it but also to to really try to be present in it and then to also understand 
the worst case scenarios. And I guess hearing those relationships and having those conversations, et cetera, it kind of just really opened it up to really just pull the trigger where a lot of people just stay stuck. Yeah. And I'll tell you from there, you know, and, and I can't really talk a lot about it, but there, there are times uh, that comfort allows you to say no. No, I either don't want to be part of this organization or no, I don't want to be in a deal with these guys or I don't want to, I don't want to operate my business this way or I want to do it a certain way. And, and it gives you that freedom and confidence to say, no, you know what I mean? The money would be nice, but I don't have to do that. And I'm not going to do that. And and that brings comfort, I think, for me to know, hey, you know, God has blessed me to be in a certain position to where I am, to where I don't have to just make every single dime and I don't have to do every single deal or partner with every single person that I run into. Yeah. And you see that in others, too, that you have a relationship with and respect. I, I've I've seen that. But, you know, a lot of people don't talk about that in particular. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's my that's James Macklin's experience and, and my comfort. I kind of think I would like to think that some of the people that are friends have had that experience or that feel that way. I take that back. There is I do have one close friend. And, and uh, early on, when I first left and, and he let me you know use office space, et cetera, and he would tell me, James, fight for your freedom, <laughs> fight for your freedom. But so he may have been the only one that uh, really talked to me in that sense, meaning, you know, he was saying fight for your freedom, meaning that, you know what I mean? Just uh, be in a position to where you can live your core and show in your business and make decisions on whether you're going to either do business or not do business or, or, or how you want to do business. You control that now. And, um, and God's going to bless you if you do that. When you think back over, you know, these last few years, what's been better than what you would have expected? Man. Oh, wow. Probably getting to really exercise that faith, faith muscle, to be honest with you. And the, the evidence of the love that my wife and family has for me has been, has been amazing. And, and the support of some friends and family, George, you know what I mean? Just kind of, you really figure out, again, I think one of the things I quoted or, or Calkins quoted me saying is that, you know what I mean? It's, it's very easy for people to say, hey, I, so you, you know this. It's easy for them to say, go, go, go. I support you. But when people say I'm with you and write your, you know, and say, hey, I'm going to invest in you, that's a little bit different. <laughs> and I've been surprised that some of the people that have been with me and I've been surprised on the other side that some that aren't, you know, but uh, I think those are, those are really telling circumstances. And, and uh, it's, it's really to, it's really neat to see some of the, the friends, the people that you thought were friends really figure out that, hey, you know, they really care about me. And, and so that's been, that's been great. That's been fun. Yeah. I read that investment in multifamily in 2020, it was 191 billion in the market. And then last year, because of the pandemic, it dropped to 111. This was a CBRE national data. So I just want to put that out there as a source. But then, you know, I I think, you know, when you talk multifamily, I'm a multifamily guy. So 
clearly I'm, I'm biased, but I, I like that business because when you look back over, you know, those major changes in eco- economics, uh, macroeconomics, the multifamily sector has outperformed in most of those economic, uh, quite frankly, the downturns. You know, you think about 9-11 happened, or I think about New New Orleans when, Katri- when you had the Katrina uh, hurricane situation. And then you think about the, the mortgage bubble stuff happening. And then you think about COVID. When you think about it, those sec- the sector of multifamily out of all the other real estate sectors have just really outperformed those other ones in, in the downturn. Um, and so I like multifamily. I think you'll see it roaring back, coming back. People will be making more investments. So you saw investment drop in multifamily, but you also saw it drop everywhere else too. <laughs> right. Well, and what I was saying is that it spiked back to 148 billion and obviously it's supposed to be bullish, obviously continued on in the future. And I know in you know Memphis, which is obviously where I live. So I don't, I mean, I travel, but I don't spend a ton of time studying other places, but just a lot more continuation of um, retail apartments, et cetera, all those things. So I'm just curious from your standpoint, what are you kind of looking at for the next five, 10, 15 years? What's got you excited? What are you kind of most enthusiastic about? What are you personally most interested in and committed to in this space? I'd love to hear a little bit. We haven't talked much about your work and your business in this industry up to this point. We spent a lot of time unpacking your early days with, as an athlete, we talked through MAA, we talked about, you know, all these other things, personally, marriage, but from a work standpoint, what's it look like to you? Well, I tell you, you know, I think the the future is is really bright from what I'm working on now. You know, I've we're in the process of leasing up Madison at Midtown, which is uh, a deal in partnership with uh, Billy Orville and Tower Ventures that is across the street from Minglewood, uh, the Minglewood venue. Yeah. And that's leasing up now. Leasing is strong and we're probably the only concern that we got there is that we can't get enough refrigerators uh, because of, you know, kind of the supply chain issues that are coming out of COVID. But leasing strong there. The fairgrounds project, you know, we're excited about it. I can't share dates, but but things are looking promising there. It's a big deal in partnership with the city that I'm working on, and and I got you know three or four other things that that I'm working on that I'm I'm excited about. And I think Memphis is a special place. I think we're we're in kind of a sweet spot where I'm a fan of the administration, uh, the city administration, and they are they're on to something with this build up and not out. And, and you're seeing, you know, some of the benefits of that. I think that uh, you'll see a couple of projects that are, that are, you know, that'll come back and that'll break ground here probably within the next, you know, six months or so after being halted because of COVID and increase in pricing and wood and things of that nature. Uh, but wood has since gone down. You know, you feel some normalization coming back into the market supply chain, and so I, I, I feel I feel good about the future. And I think there'll be more multifamily deals that that happen in Memphis, uh, and that's where I'm focused. You know, that's where I'm focusing my business on today. When you say build up, not out, what does that mean? Meaning increase the density of the city as opposed to you know growing out suburbia or or you know 
city annexing additional areas to expand, pick up tax base, et cetera. You know, I think the, the growth strategy for the city is to increase the density in the city. So through really favorable tax incentives and things like that, and then really good relationships, you're just talking about a revitalization of all the real estate inside the city that people would want to either live in or visit, but that can give the city a continued better image, better look, better feel, also create a lot more entertainment and excitement, et cetera, and just continue to bring people in inside. Yeah, I think downtown is a is amazing. I, you know, I've had visitors um, in the city looking at, at deals over the last, call it six months or so since COVID, you know, since we've been back opening COVID and and they can just feel the excitement that's happening downtown, things that are going on with St. Jude and the medical district, the things that are happening at the University of Memphis to, you know, it's like, you know, just not knowing all of the stuff that's going on in Memphis, people just don't know about it. And when they get here, they say, hey, you know, we may, we need to, we need to kind of take another look. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying there's just a lot of activity, a lot of optimism. There's people with good balance sheets and a lot of creativity. And it's just from what you're saying, it's early on. Yeah, I think when I say early on, it, I think, you know, pre-COVID, Memphis was in a really good position from a development standpoint. You know what I mean? There were a lot of projects that were announced and and that were coming. And I think during COVID, they just kind of stopped. Or a lot of most projects stopped because of, quite frankly, inflationary pressures and things like that, uncertainty in the market. You just couldn't do a big deal. But now that's opening back up to get us back to where we were uh, pre-COVID. And, and then even from there, the future still looks bright. And when you say you're a fan of this administration, what are the things that this administration has done right, in your opinion, that has created this sense of activity and excitement that maybe take a different leader? If they don't do it, things get stagnant. You know, um, I, I think the the tax incentives to it, to incent construction and development, it just works those numbers just work. You know, you got a lot of properties that aren't generating property tax, and then you you give an incentive to a group to build something on on that plot of land, and then and they start paying some taxes that is far and above what it was at prior to that. You know what I mean? It's just the math just makes so much sense. And I think that there is a there's a practicality that I've seen with this administration that's really been been special. Not that the other administrations, I don't know, you know what I mean? I can't say what happens with a different administration or not, but uh, it seems like the challenges that this administration has had has kind of met them head on and 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 had had a lot of wins. And, and quite frankly, I don't know of any losses. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've mentioned this a few times and whether it's about yourself or someone else, I'd love to understand this where we close and wrap up, but and as much as you feel comfortable about talking about this, but what does exactly it mean when George Cates said then and when he said it as of late, you're smart, you're black, and the city needs you? Why does that matter and what does it mean? You know, I think um, I tend to be a numbers guy, you know, engineering, MBA, just look at the numbers. You know, we got a city that's 60 plus percent, you know, black and 
there's maybe one or two African-American developers that are playing in this world, in this world. Uh, you know, I think uh, Archie Willis is is one and he really focuses on community and, and afford some affordable stuff and do, does a lot of great work, man. He is amazing uh, at what, what he does. And then I'm traditionally trying to work on conventional deals. I think there's some, um, call it, you know, African-American minority developers that are kind of playing in this area, but I think there could be a question of whether they wake up every day trying to do this, right? Uh, and I think I'm one of those. I wonder what George really means about that. And I wonder what some, when some other people say that, what it means. So I have a really hard time in, in trying to explain what that means. You know what I mean? I just don't, you know, I, I like the think about, I, I, I help a lot, I will help a lot of people, you know, you talk about some of the boards and some of the civic things that, that I care about, that I work on. I do think, you know what I mean? That'll put me in a better position to give even more <laughs> or my wife and I to give even more that matters. And I think there's an education component that I want to deal with relative to, you know, financial knowledge, knowledge and about knowledges of, of real estate deals that I would love to teach the younger generation about how to do that. But uh, I struggle with a way to answer your, your question, you know, in the right, in the right way. Gotcha. Is that rude or disrespectful on my end to ask that question? No, I I don't, I don't think so. You know, you're just asking why did somebody say something that they said? (laughs) Yeah. What's the, because obviously George Cates, others, but really the way that you've talked about him, he sounded like a man of decency sounded like a man of excellence. He sounded like a man of love. It sounded very pivotal to you. And I know it's pivotal to others, but you talked about that from the early days and what that meant to you. You've talked about your passion, your drive. You talk about your love for that company. You talk about your love for starting your own company in this space. We haven't even really talked about your work with the University of Memphis or CBU or Soulsville, unfortunately. You talked about it even a few years ago. So obviously there's something there that meant to you and there's something there that he was hell bent on, I guess, trying to support and love and encourage because it working with you sounds like it's going to work with a lot of other people, I guess. I mean, that's my only assumption. And that's what I was trying to understand from what you were saying. You know, I've been in a lot of rooms in this city. And again, you find yourself in a city like Memphis that in a lot of ways, I just should not be the only black guy in the room. And that still happens, right? Um, And I think maybe, I hate to kind of, you know, try to answer why someone else said what they said, but I think, you know, what I take away from it is, is that, you know, how do we get to a point where George doesn't have to take my race into consideration as he's growing businesses in Memphis? And I think that, uh, and I'm just saying Memphis, just in general, I think you probably got some of these issues across the country, but because of, you know, our history and, and, and where we are, it's just important and particularly important where when you look at those numbers at 60%, you know, uh, then you look at the bottom or, or the most underrepresented or the most economically challenged communities. I think those numbers, you know, if we're 60% in the city, maybe maybe those 
lower income people was 80% black. You know what I mean? It's disproportionate. And you see what happens with COVID and the impact and just the numbers just tell you that. And we just can't continue to close our eyes to that. So how do we change it through, you know, education? I think of which quite frankly, Memphis is on the forefront of educationally pre-K some of the things that are going on with Port Leith and the city and, and the Shelby County schools are so important. The work that Gary Shore is doing over at early childhood is just, uh, you know what I mean? There, there's a lot of special work that's going on in Memphis that you see some opportunities of things going to get better and things are going to change and that kind of thing. So, which makes me excited about Memphis. Do you feel a sense of like you're fighting for something bigger than yourself? by putting up your own shingle, by being your, starting your own real estate development company, leaving a great corporation, starting your own, and really trying to, to build your own company? Do you feel like you're fighting for something bigger than yourself? No doubt about it. You know what I mean? That's the exciting piece of it. It's, uh, that's where it means more, more than the money. When you can, again, I talked a little earlier about being able to say no, <laughs> but the other side is, okay, if, you know what I mean? I try to think, okay, if I, if I do this deal or if I do that deal, you know, I literally, you know, think about how do I help other people and, and what impact I can have on other lives by doing that. And, and quite frankly, if I don't do that, what's the point? You know what I mean? I'm 50 years old, don't have to work anymore, but you know, I want to do this. Uh, but if I can't do what I do to help other people, and using what I learned at Mid-America, what I did at Mid-America, you know what I mean? It's, uh, you know what I mean? I, I've kind of fought that battle too, is that, hey, you know, you, you did it at Mid-America for 20 years, but now that you have your own shingle, you're, you're new. It's like you hadn't, it's like that 20 years is erased <laughs> uh, because you're doing it by yourself. I mean, you've been through some of that stuff too, but, but you, you get what I'm saying. But it's uh yeah, there's there's definitely a call to duty, a call to something higher, and always looking at for me is how do I help and how can I help other people from the talents and the resources that God has blessed me with. And so what you're saying is when you look at deals, when you look at projects, when you think about relationships, you're not just thinking about the finances or capital needed or what the specifics are, the terms of it, but you're thinking about who is that deal for? What's the bottom line of that deal? Not just from a financial standpoint, but those are the things, because it sounds like if I understand what you're saying, it could be very easy for you to potentially just maybe do things with more frequency or volume, but it doesn't move the needle on things that you feel very convicted about and, and also the things that others have been very supportive in you and trying to change and move the needle on. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think I think that's right in, in, in some ways. But I also think, you know, and my wife, she she gets on me a lot about this is that, uh, you know, if I'm if I'm involved with the project, you know, call it before I get my contract or before I get my deal nailed down. She says, James, you're already thinking about how you can help somebody else get involved with the project, get paid on the project before you even get a dime. <laughs> and uh, and I think about one of the last projects that I did, which is really important just because I want to be, I want to be able to do it differently. I want to be able to kind of hire different people. I think, you know, I mean, in a city that's 60% black, I think having a, 
minority women owned participation goal of 30%, I think it's just crazy. I think we ought to be able to do better. I think having not being able to have all these projects that are going on and and minority participation on the ownership side is well probably less than 10%. I think it shouldn't be that way. I, and I think we got to change the way we look at that if 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 the city is going to be greater and better than what it is today. And I think the administration understands and knows that it knows that it was, as well. Where do you think that came from? You know, years ago, going back to 1977 with your mentor and how you were trained, that's rubbed off on you, that's driving you with the way you're doing business today. But where does that come from? You know, what makes a person so committed to something and then also being so talented and being able to to bring it out and to actually make it come to fruition and execute? You know, I, it's got, it's, you know, I can answer for myself, you know, and I don't know, and I didn't get to meet George's parents or the people that raised George or any of that stuff. But you know what I mean? I think it's, I think it's the core of the person and the core of their belief system. And for me that I'm a Christian and it's that servant leadership that really drives me. And that's the model, you know what I mean? And, and there's no, for me, there's no secret about that. And I think that servant leadership, I think you hear and you see that in, in that that you hear from Eric at Mid-America today is that servant leadership. And you can say it a lot of different ways, but at the core of it all, that's what it's about. And, and that that's what drives me. Hey, everybody, since you've made it this far in the show, I want to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, then go to drivenbypodcast.com and send me a message. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.